You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to what is our first Behind the Headlines event of 2023. My name is Kieran O'Neill, and I'm Deputy Director of Trinity Longroom Hub, Trinity's flagship Arts and Humanities Research Institute. I also have the privilege of working alongside colleagues uh, like Mobeen Hussein and Patrick Walsh, uh, and with whom I run our institution-wide Colonial Legacies project. Behind the Headlines is the Hub's signature public discussion series, and it is supported by John Pollard Foundation. It offers background and expert analyses of current issues, drawing on the long-term perspectives of arts and humanities research. It aims to provide a forum that deepens understanding, combats simplification, and creates space for informed and respectful public discourse. Tonight's Behind the Headlines feels even more timely than usual. It centres on an issue that has come to dominate coverage of our own university, meaning that we join a growing chorus of institutions, museums and universities who are trying to better understand the complexities of the collections of human remains that descend to them from previous generations. In recent years, we have seen controversies and protests erupt at North America, American universities now being held to account for their systematic collection and display of the remains of enslaved and indigenous peoples. So too have institutions and museums across Europe and the United Kingdom begun to answer and engage with requests for return, repatriation and redress. Each of these news stories is of course unique, but all share the same essential pattern. In each case, we see similar patterns of power, consent and colonialism at play. For museum professionals or educators, human remains occupy a liminal space between specimen and subject, relic and artifact. To claimants and communities of origin, they may be seen as remains of ancestors and of course community members. That liminality can seem academic to them. Over the past academic year, Trinity College Dublin has begun the necessary work of listening to communities of origin for some of the human remains stored on campus, and in particular those uh, taken from a graveyard on the offshore island of Inish Boffin in July of 1890. We take this opportunity to acknowledge the advocacy of that community here tonight. The Inish Boffin remains are just 13 among a whole collection of human remains on site, many of which were donated to Trinity by former staff and students in previous generations, and often without the consent of either the communities of origin or indeed the individuals in question. Tonight we position Trinity as in the early stages of learning and listening to others who have, like us, had reason to think carefully about the intersections of power, consent, and colonialism in relation to historic human remains. To do that tonight, we are joined by a superb panel of teachers, activists, and curators, each of whom has a valuable perspective that we hope to learn from. I will introduce our speakers in the order that they will appear on your screen. The event will last about an hour, and we will hear from a total of four speakers, each of whom will speak for about six or seven minutes initially. Our first speaker will be Professor Samuel J. Redmond. Sam joins us from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst and is the author of several influential monographs in this area, including Bone Rooms, a book I have used ceaselessly in recent years as I teach the history of our own bone rooms here at Trinity College Dublin, and which is now, I'm happy to say, available in a new paperback edition. After Sam, we'll hear from Peggy King-Jord, 
an activist and city planner with many decades of experience of advocating for the recognition and right to be remembered of Africans and African-Americans whose remains have been systematically mistreated. Peggy was the tireless advocate behind um, the African Burial Ground and Interpretive Center in New York City, and more recently has been involved in the drive to have a mass burial site of formerly enslaved people on the island of St. Helena, recognized as a heritage site of global significance. Her impact has been captured in the recent documentary, A Story of Bones, which came out last summer. After Peggy, we will hear from Dr. Olaf Lundström. Olaf is docent or reader in the history of science and ideas, employed by the Karolinska Institute since 2005 to write and teach the history of modern medical research and to document and write the history of the Institute alongside that. Lastly, we will turn to our in-house expert on human remains and anatomy, Evie Newman. Evie is the curator of the Old Anatomy Museum here at Trinity College Dublin, and previously held the position of exhibitions manager and designer at the Mutter Museum of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia from 2009 to 2016. Some housekeeping before I cede the platform to these brilliant guests. It makes sense at the beginning of this event, I think, to say that we will be showing some carefully selected images of human remains. So while we will offer content warnings um, as the event proceeds, you can take this as an initial uh, content and trigger warning for those of you who might uh, feel that might that might make them uncomfortable or distressed in any way. And now over to Sam. All right, so I uh, have been thinking about this as a question and a topic for a number of years. Uh, specifically, I am a historian today. I teach history classes, and I'm interested in U.S. history, United States history, American history. So admittedly, I'm coming at this from, from that sort of a perspective. But I wanted to offer a little bit of an overview or some of the big picture to, to think about as we progress forward and, and learn from some of these amazing panelists. I first became interested in the question of human remains and museums uh, many years ago when I was first working as an intern, I was maybe 18, 19, and working at the Field Museum of Natural History, which is one of the large natural history museums in all of the United States. And having taken a simple physical anthropology class, I was asked to do some work uh, involving cataloging the collections of human remains and uh, potentially repatriating them. So repatriation is probably a word, hopefully you'll hear a great deal tonight, which in the US context simply means returns uh, or, or uh, uh, to, to uh, see human remains be uh, given back in many cases to their descendant communities, often for reburial. I was surprised uh, as an 18, 19 year old student to learn that the Field Museum had as many as 18,000 sets of human remains. And uh, I then subsequently went to go work at the Colorado Historical Society, what is now today Colorado History, where I worked on uh, what was then the largest repatriation of human remains that had ever taken place in uh, North America, involving a number of tribal communities in the American Southwest that, that came together to uh, request legally demand, in, in this case, the return of uh, their ancestors to uh, be reburied at a secret location in the American Southwest. So when I went to graduate school, I could not stop thinking about this, how I'd seen these vast storehouses of hundreds and in some cases, thousands of human remains 
It was clear to me that many of these were Native American human remains or the indigenous people of North America, First Nations, as they're often called in Canada. But over time, I, I still, you know, I still couldn't get this out of my mind. And it became the subject of my dissertation and then first book, uh, Bone Rooms, after spending about five to seven years uh, just intensively studying this question, traveling to large museums, small museums, and uh, trying to get a handle on, on this as a, as a situation. So what I found uh, were, were a few things that, that surprised me. And there were some things that maybe fit within these ideas that I had uh, uh, going into the project, but many other things really surprised me about this story. The first thing that really shocked me about the story is the size of these collections that we're talking about. The Smithsonian Institution at its peak had an estimated 38,000 sets of human remains. Uh, the American Museum of Natural History also had approximately 18,000 sets of human remains. A recent report has come out from Harvard University suggesting they have about 22,000 sets of human remains. Some recent reporting has suggested that this number may be across of Native American remains in museums across the United States may be in the ballpark of 125,000. That's one of the lowest estimates that I've seen. I think on one hand, I can count the number of a number of institutions that we can tally up to 125,000. And that's not even getting to the state historical societies, state universities like the University of Massachusetts, many of which also had collections of human remains. The National Park Service at one time uh, 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 issued an estimate that I think is far more accurate, frankly. And that estimate was 500,000 sets of Native American human remains held in U.S. repositories and institutions. This in addition to the other 500,000 or a total of a million that are in European institutions, places like the British Museum and uh, other institutions across Europe. So how did these remains get to museums? That really was my big question that I set forth in uh, working on this project. And again, the answer really surprised me. I think a lot of the available literature, some of which was very good, focuses on a few key archaeologists or individuals, uh, individuals that have recently appeared in the news again lately here in the United States, figures like Samuel George Morton, who was sort of an armchair anthropologist in some sense. He commissioned lots of people around the world to collect uh, uh, human skulls especially and send them back to uh, his uh, 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 laboratory and offices. A lot of his work was used by um, uh, 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 people in pretty ugly ways to support the racial structures, the racial hierarchies. What emerges is this sort of notion of uh, that we called today scientific racism, this idea that people could be categorically separated and maybe ranked on some hierarchy of human achievement. And connected to this understanding were ideas about the human skull in particular, that the human skull influenced by phrenology on one side and eugenics on another side, sort of bookending these ideas. It was quite commonly believed that the size and shape of our skulls could give a scientist later on ideas about personality and industriousness and intelligence, ideas that have now been thoroughly debunked uh, and uh, pointed out that they are uh, resting on problematic uh, assumptions. 
But that gives us an inkling of why and how skulls became in, uh, important and so uh, uh, desired as a commodity for these institutions. But to me, those 200s, 400 skulls that Samuel George Morton collected, that doesn't explain how there are 30,000 sets of human remains at a place like the Smithsonian or half a million sets of remains of native remains at institutions across the country. So to me, the important story became that once these repositories were set up, many different types of people were interested in them and wanted to contribute. People who were medical doctors, army officers, navy officers, missionaries, interested amateurs, farmers who would discover uh, burials on their uh, uh, plots of land that then they would submit uh, to a local museum or submit to a place like uh, the Smithsonian. So flashing forward to more recent history, in 1990, a really important law was passed in the United States called NAGPRA, or the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, which allows for the return in many cases of human remains. But this has not solved the questions at all. As we've seen recently in the news, at the University of Pennsylvania and at Harvard, there have been recent sort of, in many respects, rediscovery of this as a problem and thinking not just about native remains, but of the remains of the formerly enslaved uh, African-American individuals, especially. So that has created a firestorm of controversy at places like the University of Pennsylvania and at Harvard University. And I'll also just mention in closing here that in recent weeks, the Smithsonian Institution has come out with a, what they're calling an ethical returns policy, where they're specifically highlighting and referencing their problem past in relation to the history of collecting and exhibiting human remains. So again, this is a challenging, uh, complicated story with lots of ethical and moral uh, uh, problems for us to wrestle with and think about today. But I just want to emphasize how large and vast these collections were. If you went into a museum uh, uh, 100 years ago, it's very likely that you would have seen these things on exhibit, on display, but many of them were held behind the scenes. So we really have a uh, little concept in our minds about how consequential and important that was. So I'll pause there and I'm uh, looking forward so much to hearing from these other panelists today. Thanks very much, Sam. And next we'll hear from Peggy. Thank you, Kieran. I'm going to go straight to the slide. First slide. <clears throat> Thank you. Good, good evening, everyone, and uh, thank you, uh, Karen, for allowing me to share something of the memory work that I do with burial grounds. In the 30 plus years since my work on the New York African burial ground, I've become a practitioner in the field, working with a variety of stakeholders and communities across the Atlantic. The work can be challenging and sometimes confrontational because it usually calls for the reclamation of cultural assets that were stolen or desecrated and have been too long in the possession of others who refused to accept that ownership was never theirs and that a debt of reparative justice is owed. With the rediscovery of the African burial ground in New York City, a lot of lessons were learned and continue to inform projects like it across the US and across the Atlantic. Whether it is about the project research, relationship building with stakeholders and interpretation, we learned that cultural and historical integrity of the project must insist upon the meaningful engagement of the descendant and stakeholding community. 
along with educators, scholars, activists, historic site practitioners, and curators. And that empowering stakeholder voices are a way of challenging the public to consider their point of view. The bedrock of the memory tied to the New York African burial ground was in its meaningful community engagement and consent on a multitude of levels. The engagement process was vigorous and vital to ensuring that respectful retrieval and treatment of ancestral remains in the field and over the course of scientific research at Howard University, where descendant stakeholders could visit the lab and ensure that the utmost care and respect were being afforded even to the extent that a place was reserved in the lab for cultural practices and offerings. African-American leadership in research and public dissemination of information and the memorial design, interpretation and reinterment were all very critical to this process. Next slide, please. This site um, is in Northern Manhattan. The Inwood Sacred Sites Project is quite unique and will no doubt set a precedence for future projects, at least in the States. In this case, rarely does a developer willingly um, set out uh, to seek my services and take on such a preservation project. A housing developer and nonprofit organization in New York advanced plans to purchase a lot to build and operate a high quality shelter for people experiencing homelessness. In other words, marginalized, a marginalized community uh, in the US or in a city like New York. The site was an auto repair shop. But research about the site's history revealed that it was part of a cemetery for enslaved African people and adjoined by an indigenous Lenape ceremonial area dating earlier. In 1903, as the neighborhood developed, city work crews unearthed the human remains of nearly 40 enslaved individuals. These individuals were buried on a Dutch farm. Uh, for those of you who know New York, Dykeman is, is one of those prominent families. They were dishonored and discarded and removed uh, several Lenape ceremonial pits. And rather than walk away from the site, the developer embraced um, uh, the historical significance and committed to preserving the site's historical integrity, even if they could not develop the site as planned. There is currently no recognition of the site's history or acknowledgement of those previously buried. And it is for that reason that the developer and I have worked with a design team comprised of African-American and Native American architects to develop uh, a design responsive to recommendations from our community advisory group. We anticipate repatriation of a few of the human remains, which may be returned to the site in the future. What you see pictured on the lower left is actually a log from the Museum of Natural History of some of the skulls that actually came from the site in 1903. Um, some will know or recognize the name uh, Hertlichka, uh, who apparently is considered the father of eugenics. Um, and then there's another gentleman, Henry Morgan, who I think in fact, uh, and you'll see that it's noted as gift. And he in fact was one of the reporters who had gone to the site to write about the site. Next slide, please. And finally, um, in varying capacities, the third site 
uh, I've consulted, or the third slide um, is uh, a slide about St. Saint Helena. Uh, in varying capacities, I've consulted on an extraordinary burial site in St. Helena since 2016. I'm a producer and a film subject for the British documentary, A Story of Bones. The film chronicles the story of two Black women who join forces across the Atlantic to reclaim and honor the neglected history on the remote island of St. Helena after human remains of thousands of enslaved Africans were excavated to make way for an airport service road. The remains were excavated in 2008 and were stored in the pipe room, the building pictured with flowers in front of the door, part of a prison facility in Jamestown. Astoria Bones premiered in June 2022 at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City, marking the launch of a global impact campaign to raise awareness around the treatment or mistreatment of the site and the need for memorializing. A much revised plan for reburial finally took place in 2022, and it is believed to have been precipitated by the anticipated release of the film, which has served as a tool for Anina Veneal, who is the protagonist of the film, and I call my sister in the struggle on the island of St. Helena. The departure from the original master plan for reburial um, was to include international participation and a more generously funded affair, but it fell short of what was envisioned for a site with such global significance. There's very little um, there was very little community, meaningful community engagement at the outset during the excavation of the remains in 2008, in contrast to the New York African Burial Ground Project, and I believe the project has suffered for that reason, although the government um, has publicly advised that a memorial would be realized, uh, the status is unclear. The unmarked burial ground for thousands of enslaved Afri Africans represents a significant trace of the middle passage leg of the transatlantic slave trade. And we can always go back to these um, photos if people have questions. Thank you. Thank you so much, Peggy. That's really interesting. Um, we'll pass over to Olaf next, please. Okay, thank you so much for inviting me. I, I think I need to sort of do some uh, slight preliminaries then. And I saw you making a sort of run up at the beast of a name I have. Uh, and and it's to simplify it, the, the, the L is mute and the J is soft. Uh, and so I'm I'm and I I, I I do a thing about hats and you very kindly gave me the the academic historian's hat, uh, but if I'm sort of appearing and speaking on this tonight, you should probably envision me with the the civil servant hat firmly on. Uh, my function is that as sort of a government official of of the Swedish university in that respect. Uh, but I am I'm also the head of uh, a small unit uh, that in translation becomes the unit for for objects and research and objects in this sense means all kinds of collections uh, that uh, medical university, which the Karolinska sort of um, presents itself as has accrued over its 200 plus years existence. But it is one of these situations where and as a sort of reference back to Sam here. Um, there is some, yeah, there's a U situation, then there's a European situation. There are similarities and there are some you know, inflections 
that differ. But if you go to Europe and anywhere you go and there is a 19th century medical faculty with an anatomy department, you can you can make a sort of small bet and probably win it that it's going to have a craniological collection stuck somewhere. And if it hasn't had one, it has sort of managed to get rid of it somehow. Uh, and this is the situation also in Scandinavia, it's the situation in Germany or France or Italy. It's also the situation in, 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 in Russian Ukraine even. Uh, there is a lot of this. Um, it is, however, to some extent more related to these questions of, of uh, the, the European idea of history and the European idea of and discover of prehistory. So you get a sort of slightly different inflection on what what is what is you know being kept in these collections. Um, so so you know that's that's a way of broaching that you're going to sort of march not just into the territory of colonialism and imperialism but also nationalism. Uh, and there's also the 19th century nationalism. Uh, and then you also bring up all kinds of questions of how history has been used as a tool to assign status, competence, um, uh, value between groups and between nations even. And this is one of the situations we have at the Karolinska, and it's an unresolved situation. It's still outstanding. I would make no prognosis on how this would actually end. Uh, but I think I can sort of bring up the 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 the, the location of of the crime scene, so to speak, uh, primarily. If I'm asked, if I ask for the slide to be sort of put on for you, Let's see if it comes up here. So welcome to Finland. Uh, so this is the Pelkine Church ruin. Uh, it's a medieval church in southern Finland. Uh, it, it, the deterioration of the church began in 1713 with the Battle of Pelkina. Uh, Russian artillery fire uh, brought down one of one of the the uh, one of the walls of the church, the the posting walls, the one you see here. Uh, and so the church is a ruin. It's a medieval church ruin, and it is abandoned. Uh, this is um, peculiarly in the in the sense that this in 1873 became the venue where a small uh, contingent of, of anatomists from the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm uh, descended on this burial site and made off with some 40 plus uh, human, human remains, specifically cranium. What we have, what we're dealing with is, in this situation then, is a situation that Finland and Sweden are already at the time in 1873 separate nations. Uh, there is no connection anymore uh, since, and as I mentioned, the Russians. Uh, Sweden comes out of the Napoleonic War along with Denmark as an amputated former great power. Uh, it creates a new situation in Scandinavia where Norway and Finland both have the opportunity that, while not technically completely independent, both can start building entirely independent national institutions. Uh, and in, in the Finnish case, they end up in the situation that they have become uh, a part of the Russian Empire. But they're a specific, they're, they're a, a special part and a somehow a, a, a favored part of the empire, since the, 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 the emperor of Russia rules Finland as Archduke of Finland, uh, which means that the Finns actually get to keep the Swedish constitution from 1772. And for the Russians, this, this means the Russian emperor specifically, this means, this means he can present himself as a constitutional monarch of a European nation, a Lutheran European nation, um, 
and for the Finland, this means that they are they are suddenly no longer the 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 eastern half of Sweden, uh, and a contested border region between uh, a Swedish sort of early modern uh, non nation state uh, and the Russian Empire. And instead, they're now part of the Russian Empire, but they are uh, a European part of the Russian Empire. And within the, this Russian Empire, Finland can build the, the, the national institutions that, that it, will, it will then sort of use uh, after independence in 1918. Uh, what it does set up is, sort of, is, is a complex situation of what Swedish and Finnish means between Sweden and Finland. And it's not a situation simply that there are Finns in Finland and Swedes in Sweden. There have always been Finnish minorities in Sweden just as there, is, there has always been and still is a Swedish-speaking minority in Finland. Um, but what happens when, when a, a gang of anatomists from the Karolinska hungry for skulls descend on a small Finnish village is, is um, the, the optics of this are, are startling. And what has happened in, in our work with the, the anatomical collections of the Karolinska is that um, we actually took this collection back to the Institute in 2015, specifically to start a program of working through repatriation requests. We did not expect Finland to sort of, you know, present itself as, as a candidate for this at first. Uh, this collection is not unknown. It has been sort of a known collection and used also by Finnish archeologists traveling to Stockholm. It's not very distant from, from the, um, already back in the in the nineties, so, so it's an archaeological collection. The the uh, the the collection policy, so to speak, uh, of the anatomists who, who sort of who did this was to try to find as old as old crania as possible, uh, as, as archaeological. So these are medieval, early modern period, uh, and they have this has been a known sort of collection. That has been used for archaeological research. Uh, but in taking it back to the Institute and in starting these processes of repatriation, I think we've done sort of 36 individuals to about a dozen different native groups around the world so far. Uh, we did in 2018 also encounter um, a group of Finnish activists who approached the Institute and have been um, militating for the, the return and reburial of this collection in Finland post-haste uh, since. The peculiarity of the situation is that this group is entirely based in Sweden. Uh, and there are, there are several Finnish-speaking groups in Sweden who are, who are part of the, the national minority in Sweden. What we haven't so far come across is any kind of request from Finland to do anything in particular. Nothing in that vein has been directly communicated to the Institute. So what we're dealing with is, is, is a militancy within Sweden, within the Finnish community, uh, an, activist, uh, an activist sort of formation of, 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 of an agenda here uh, that is very clear what they want, uh, but cannot deliver what we need, which is uh, clear, clear advice on what does Finland want in this situation. And what they have been doing in, in the meantime, of course, has been, has been to sort of uh, work on building support and in particular approaching Finnish media with their story regarding this collection in Finland. So, so, so the dynamic becomes very peculiar in the sense that we have we have a sort of not fairly fractious uh, at times uh, interaction with this community, this, this activist group in Sweden. Uh, 
we do not get traffic from Finland and we have not been approached by sort of any any kind of representatives of official Finland regarding what Finland might want to do in this case. That, that's great, Olaf. I might just pass on to Eddie. That's a, a really interesting even moment to stop on, I think, before we, we move on. And we'll, we'll come back to questions to this particular problem. Thanks so much for outlining it. Um, welcome. Eddie, if I can pass over to you, that's great. Hi, everyone. Um, thank you so much for having me here. I will also uh, just take a second to explain that my hat is not necessarily one of a purely academic uh, person. I have a fine arts background and a design background, and now I have um, landed through a series of, uh, I guess, bizarre events in the, in the position of um, history of medicine uh, interpretation. And I want to talk to you a little bit about the, the collection we have here, just to give you a very quick overview. Um, and to do so, I will share my screen. So our museum uh, dates back to 1711 uh, at the foundation of the School of Medicine, as other collections um, around the world and uh, Europe and the US and Australia as well, um, were collected for the purpose of medical education. Uh, the same goes for ours. From 1711 to 1825 or so, uh, the collection of the School of Medicine is public facing. It actually allows women to visit, which is very unusual for a collection of this time, as it's deemed that women are too sensitive to um, see such sites. Uh, in 1825, the museum moves to another building and the collection closes to the public um, entirely. It is only for the eyes of medical students and professors, researchers and educators. And on the side here, you see a view of the museum in 1933 in the photograph. And that is very close to the state of the museum today. Um, we are missing a few cases. Other than that, uh, this is close to, to our state um, today. Uh, I will be showing human remains in this uh, presentation and most, all of them will be skeletal. Most of them will be skulls with a couple of uh, skeletons as well. And I wanna remind you of course that um, we appreciate these photographs not being taken out of context. It is very important for us to place them in an educational context and a historical context. Um, so I would, I'll ask you not to share them out of context. Oops. So um, the old anatomy museum collection, as we have surveyed it uh, since 2011, uh, consists of books, artifacts, artwork, archives, and specimens. Uh, the specimens are both animal and human remains, primarily human remains. Um, and I say since 2011, because the collection was packed in 1948 uh, at a, in a large part and placed in storage. In 2011, when the School of Medicine moved premises, the collection was essentially rediscovered. And since then, we have had the uh, momentous task of having to catalog, conserve, and eventually curate 
this, this fairly large collection um, of 300 years of Irish medical heritage. So you can imagine our challenges. Um, now, our ultimate goal is to have a public facing museum attached to an academic medical heritage center and to focus on preserving the history of the Irish medical heritage. Um, not only highlighting the doctors and physicians and the, the kind of stories of um, renowned men that we know uh, very well in, in some cases, but to uh, really focus on the lesser known stories, the stories of the patients, the stories of, of the women and the minorities in these collections. Um, and the people that really formed the foundation of Irish medical knowledge. Now, uh, part of the collection is um, fairly contentious. It is the anthropometric laboratory collection that we are uh, finding ourselves in the news about. Um, and that collection has a number of several dozens uh, remains that are very good candidates for repatriation. I mentioned that we are focusing on the Irish medical heritage. Uh, we do not believe we have the right to curate the remains of other peoples. Um, and we also have provenance that allows us to consider um, repatriation for quite a, a set of, of these remains. Now, the present issue that has arisen is that of remains found in Inishbofin in 1890. Um, you probably know part of the story. Uh, I will retell it very quickly um, just to give you an overview for those of you who don't know the story. Um, so Haddon, um, AC Haddon was uh, an employee of the then National Museum of Ireland when he was doing a survey of the fisheries of the west of Ireland. And he arrived in Inishbofin. Um, he saw the ruins of um, a medieval abbey, St. Coleman's. And in, among those ruins, um, he saw uh, ossuary formation of skulls, uh, primarily fragmented. And he says that, um, most of them were fragmented and he was able to collect the best ones. Um, so he collects 13, um, 13 fragmentary crania, mostly just the dome of the head. And he takes them under the cover of night and with dishonesty uh, back to Dublin. I should also mention that he remains in in Inishbofin for two days after he has been suspected of doing this by the local community. And he says it was without incident. So of course we don't know the, the full story. We only have his accounts for that. Um, I hesitate, I went back and forth whether I should show you this, but I think it's important to really uh, connect with what 
is at stake. Um, the remains are very fragmentary. They are not, they are not uh, including the frontal bones, um, except for the case of one. And they are also, um, so they do not include the frontal bones except for one. And they're mostly just the dome of the head. Um, the rest is presumably either buried um, in the area or uh, within the footprint of the church, perhaps, as was the custom of the time, um, or has completely decomposed. Now, in terms of the custom of the time, as I said, I we've been doing a lot of provenance research and just learning about the burial customs of the time. Now, we do not exactly know what that time is because we have only had um, the opportunity to carbon date a single of the 13 prania. Um, none of them include teeth so that limits our, our ability to do testing. However, carbon dating is a fairly reliable method to ascertain um, the age of the time of death. Uh, the, single, um, the single sample that we have dates to 1563. What we do know from that time is that people uh, practice intramural burial. So they were buried within the church and within the churchyard. Um, and I'm showing you here uh, ossuary and catacombs. This is from um, a cathedral in London on the, my right. And the other one is an ossuary in Charnel House illustration from Germany. Uh, it was very common at the time to bury um, the dead for a period of time, three to five years or so wait for this composition and then extract the skull and uh, place that near the altar of the church or abbey. And I believe that is possibly what has happened here. Now, this tradition of secondary burial continues. Uh, this is um, ossuary in Greece, uh, where I'm from. Uh, it continues across Europe. It's in Spain, um, just that it is a mark of um, respect to display the dead and make them accessible to the community they are part of. Have um, you, sorry to cut across you here, but we're, we're gonna we're out of time for this segment. But there might be plenty of opportunities. I hope for people to jump in with questions no in, in Q and A, which we will just proceed to now. Thanks so much. Okay. So uh, many thanks to our panelists for those provocations. Very different uh, cases, uh, kind of discussed with very different perspectives, which is what we want to sort of generate a discussion. Which I hope you will join. I see some questions coming in in the Q and A, but. I'll, I'll allow a little bit more time for more to come in and I'll do my best to answer the many questions that I suspect will come from our online audience. So one thing that really united everybody's presentation was this focus, I suppose, on the, the difficulties of communication from an institutional point of view across barriers to communities uh, that feel and, and, and perhaps deserve um, you know, a, a greater stake in the futures of some of these remains that we've been discussing in general in general terms. So what unites all these things is the sort of power dynamics that are there at the, at the moment of collection, 
uh, and at the moment of storage and then come to the fore again when those remains are contested. In other words, institutions continue to guard knowledge and project power and authority and they have resources in a way that communities do not. So the odds are stacked against communities of origin or care that might come forward and request um, a stake in, in the future of the remains. And likewise, the burden and expense of proof is often laid at their feet. So this is a question for the entire panel, whoever wants to come in on it. How do we improve on this situation or how do we help eradicate that barrier that people have to face? I could jump in briefly. Um, just to, uh, you know, you're talking to historians, so I always have to go back in time. The uh, oldest example of uh, repatriation that I could find in the North American context goes all the way back to the 1930s when a sacred medicine bundle was uh, repatriated. Later in the 1960s, you also see some protest letters where people would write anonymous letters to institutions demanding the return of certain sacred objects. It's not really until the 1980s that you start to see museums in the United States engage in this type of activity. And then really that 1990 law changes everything in that it mandates museums to do an inventory and publish those results in the Federal Register. Now, just to your point, this is an unfunded mandate for Native people that there's not a lot of funding available in many cases to, to make these things happen, to send a delegation, to retrieve the remains, to rebury them. It's sort of, it's an expensive process in some sense. So yeah, it's, it's also a story of the haves and have nots, even within the Native Amer broader Native American community. Some Native communities are able to execute these and others are, are still struggling to do so. And then when they get to these institutions, it is sometimes the case that there is very real marks of resistance where uh, some of my colleagues who are archaeologists will play shell games, to be honest. To, uh, the, the, the law says that they, uh, I, uh, identifiable remains belonging to certain potential descendant communities are eligible for repatriation. So many times, archaeologists would just write down culturally unidentifiable and sort of wash their hands of uh, this type of stuff. So a new law was passed in response to that in the state of California. And there's been a lot of conversation about it in, in recent years. And I think the, the conversation has expanded now well beyond Native Americans alone. And, and we're still thinking about these issues with the Black community in Philadelphia, for example, and the University of Pennsylvania. So who exactly are the stakeholders and how will this all play out is still a question that's, that's playing out in many senses. Um, Peggy, I might just turn to you because I, I know you have a huge amount of experience of articulating or, or advocating yeah. on behalf of community groups that are coming yeah. together. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, my father used to say with knowledge comes responsibility and, you know, museums and repositories um, take great pains to log in. And I think on one of my slides, I showed a log that was in, you know, who gave it? It was a gift. It was a Negro skull. And this is at the museum. I mean, that's it's in their records. Um, these are like slave registers, you know, that information, it was business, you know, uh, and money gets raised for these institutions, uh, you know, and in fact, in the case of New York City, the Museum of Natural History occupies a building that is funded by the people, 
right? So it seems to me that the onus can't always be just on the community. The onus has to be on all the scholars and the fundraisers and the people who support those institutions and our United States government or government funding that supports those institutions that need to do better outreach. I mean, I indicated that the bedrock of the work that we do in as memory workers is, is about reaching out to the community because oftentimes the community doesn't have the tools. They don't know where to begin. Um, it's a very passionate thing, but sort of giving people the tools. And I think these institutions understand um, what they need to do. And I think that they need to be held uh, to account to at least, you know, it doesn't necessarily make them a bad guy. It only makes you a bad guy if you ignore what you know you have a responsibility to do. Okay, I see Olaf's um, hand up, up, so maybe you want to speak to this point before we move on to the next question. Well, yeah, but no, I, I'm in perfect agreement that, that that I'm sort of making arguments and in, 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 my, in my own sort of institutional environment that that uh, with knowledge comes responsibility. If if we find things out about these collections, it, it comes with an onus to sort of do something. Um, but uh, and and as the, the 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 prefacing of this this meeting is sort of context and 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 com complexity, and uh, I'm sort of struck by by this this last these last images of 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 the, these Greek crania, and and I have this little silly thing I do when I enter the the Egyptian section, the ancient Egyptian section. I intone the the Hetep Dinesu formula, which is sort of the beginning of the of the the the, the, uh, the burial prayer, ancient Egyptian burial prayer, which which gives sustenance to the dead in the life in the hereafter, uh, which is just sort of I don't know. A little thing you do but i know i'm not the only one I've, I've talked to a number of egyptologists who sort of regularly do this uh what what exactly what does that signify um it could be mean anything or it could mean nothing but it, it does signify that they're very humanity is very inventive in how we deal with or not deal with with or or, or theme but what do we do with with a dead body and we have this sort of problematic legacy which comes from science and comes from medicine, um, and and then again, um, when one of these sort of things you sort of discover when you start doing this repatriation, not in the American context, and I might sort of be, have to sort of be, be difficult, slightly difficult in that respect, because this is one of these things we've found. Uh, there are there are not least sort of the archaeological context on on conferences that have been sort of initiatives from uh, the United States and in particular Australia with with um statements of principle regarding human remains repatriation these things and they are they are entirely appropriate and, and and completely sort of reasonable as as we understand them in europe as presented by american australian etc scholars and presented to a european archaeological community and yet the so the european archaeological community looks at this and then uh, politely declines to sign because of some of this um may in in a european context with these sort of crisscrossing power relationships over literally thousands of years between nationalities and groups get sort of nasty modalities that we do not necessarily want to wake uh there is there is i mean we we are we are in a situation where in some ways the the the, the public's hunger to see dead bodies is huge we have the Günther von der Hagen and his plastinated bodies touring the world, and then he's been gotten competition by the Chinese, who will make so huge displays of plastinated bodies in in 
in in warehouses and sports arenas and 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 uh, uh, supermarkets and any anywhere they can stick them really and and for profit. It's um, funny you should say that, Olaf. Because actually, yeah. the next question is going to come in on that, and it might it might, it might be best answered by yourself and, and Evie. Perhaps, but I'll, I'll sort of the where I was going with it was also that one of the things you realise after a while. I mean, I I think I see a pattern on what's been going on in the last twenty years in international. Uh, repatriation um, when you talk to institutions that may be a European observation it, it works a little different when you sort of start dealing with the American stuff um, uh, is that th th there is sort of a, 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 a there is a certain circuit of, 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 of groups that have been able to make these kinds of claims on institutions and um, so, so mostly when you really ask that well we, we have done Australia, we have done New Zealand we have done Hawaii often there is sort of a Pacific complex going on. We we have done uh, French Polynesia as well, so the French are in on this too. Uh, and then there is North America, is also you know very very relatively favourable. But then we start looking around and and realise that well the Dutch haven't really start really started doing anything, and they have had a massive colonial empire in Southeast Asia. Uh, and partly this is because this is now possibly becoming an issue in the Netherlands. Um, we have a lot of South America in very many places, but the South American situation is is still in very many cases at one where we, we are we are you know anxiously looking on because it's still a question of will these groups survive even? And so, many of these groups I'm are just in, gonna yeah. pause you right there. Sorry, I just want to get to a couple more questions and I, and okay, I don't sure. want the window to close, but thank you so much. Evie, you might answer this one and I'll ask everybody to be succinct uh, for, so we get to a couple of audience questions. Uh, Elliot Falkas asks, is there a way of displaying human remains in museum and heritage sites to, that will help promote understanding death? I mean, you know, Olaf was just talking about just there now. Um, whilst contextualizing the remains and their source communities, I suppose the question is in some, how do we do this well and what is our best, best practice in this respect? Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for that question. I think it's really important. Um, I'm of the opinion that museum uh, display of remains or or the display that are exist in this continuum of death care. So most of us will be buried or cremated or um, however have you deposed. Um, but we have remains that are not repatriable. Um, we don't have provenance on where they were collected from um, or how. Uh, so what happens to these remains? There are calls for burial, just de facto burial of human remains in museums in general. And I think that is largely problematic because um, our society has, at the same time, uh, moving away from, from denying death and at the same time kind of embracing it in, in ways that are um, violent uh, or um, unrealistic. So we have taken death out of the uh, public uh, domain and put it in our entertainment, um, the in the 19th century, people were able to go to a church 
and see the remains of members of their community, their ancestors, in a very tangible way. We don't have the, those kind of opportunities. And like you said, there is a hunger for seeing the dead body. And the reason for that is that we all have bodies. We all have this desire to uh, both confront our physicality and confront mortality. So how do we do this in a respectful way? I think it's very important to give as much of a complete story as we can, not just the medical pathology or uh, the case history of uh, someone's remains, but how did they grow up? What kind of things can we know about their lives? What kind of things can we know about individuals who are living, living in this with these conditions today? that not only educates the public, but also takes the honors away from the disabled communities that don't need or don't want necessarily to have uh, the responsibility of educating the public about these um, conditions that impact their lives. Um, so I think the, I guess the, the conclusion is to just give as complete of a story as possible the social history, the medical history, the political history that frame um, any such display. Wonderful, thanks uh, so much, Evie. Uh, Peggy, I've, I've heard you speak very uh, brilliantly about your previous work, but I've also heard you talk about your frustration about, you know, in your experience, the erasure of, of black histories on the one hand by, by powerful and often very white um, groups in charge of heritage in, in the states and heritage institutions in particular, but you've also talked about the extent to which historic preservation hasn't always been a top priority for many black communities that you also engage with on the other side of this dynamic, if you like, for whom a, a whole myriad of other issues may be more immediate. I wonder if you could talk a little bit to, to how that might be surmounted and, and just sort of thinking about the, the problem in the round. Let me clarify, you know, historic preservation as we generally would experience it is usually a wealthy white kind of pastime, you know, preserving buildings, uh, material culture. Um, if you think in terms of a, a community of descendants of enslaved people where material culture was probably, it wasn't a thing. I mean, everything could be taken away, you could not own. So, all of the preservation, the, 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 the memory work tied to our community, for, for the most part, is intangible. We're talking about, you know, just historically, the timeline. So when, when, I, when I talk about historic preservation, um, it was very difficult for the Black community. It's, a, it's difficult for any community who doesn't have the means or the time and they have other priorities in their lives uh, or they don't understand the processes. It's not going to be a focus. I mean, it's not, it, it isn't just limited to the Black community. It's, it's any community where socioeconomically that isn't a pastime. That's not a priority uh, in your community. So that's really what I mean. Um, but the real challenge uh, when you talk about the Black community um, and uh, the passion about reclaiming and recovering uh, anything that represents our presence in a community, our presence in the historical narrative across the globe, uh, there is interest, um, but it, it, it entails 
a fight. It entails confrontation. Um, because of the resistance. I mean, and as I said, a lot of, we, if we talk about material of land, we're talking about really coming in. I don't know if you guys have the same name, but there's something that we call a repo man. And the repo man comes and repossesses whatever it is that you have that you owe, you owe money and you failed to pay, right? And so the process within the Black community, when it talks, when we talk about trying to reclaim sites that are important to us or history, it's it's the work of a repo man. It's, it, it's reminiscent of that. You're talking about going in and telling people that you had, you basically, you had no right to this and we're, we're going to recover. We intend to recover something that is ours. And, and that is always going to be met with resistance. Yeah, absolutely. And it returns me very nicely to, to Sam um, on some of the, uh, your initial points. I mean, one of the great things about what you did, Sam, was you also kind of gave us some sense of the, the enormous possible scale of this issue as, it, as it we're confronted with it um, over the next couple of decades, perhaps. I mean, a million human remains is, is quite a, a thing to even conceive of, really. Um, just in terms of what controversies you've been tracking, you know, I mean, we've seen global headlines generated at Penn, at Harvard, at Princeton, Smithsonian, many of whom have come out and made statements about ethical return or unethical possession. There's a language, I suppose, developing around how major institutions talk about their remains um, and return and repatriation and the processes involved. I'm kind of hoping that you might just talk us through where you think that language is headed, Sam, and, and, and what challenges are ahead. Very briefly, uh, I I agree. I think that there's just been a, an enormous amount of conversation about this. I'll reference a question in the chat that some of the, the, the similar conversations are happening in Ireland, are happening elsewhere in the world. But, uh, you know, between 1995 and let's say 2000, there was a lot of movement on this issue, but a lot of resistance, as uh, Peggy mentioned, that is this really important point that uh, it was not always smooth going for, for these, uh, these efforts. But even in the last two to three years, following the horrific murder of George Floyd uh, here in the United States and a lot of the uh, protests in, in response to that, I think people have been thinking more broadly and more concretely about things like systemic racism in the United States and how this played out in our academic and intellectual and cultural institutions. One of the big points that I tried to make in Bone Rooms was to think about this more globally, to think about African-American remains in the story that we often focus rightly in some sense on Native American remains, which probably in the US comprise about 90% of these collections. But then that's not the whole story, right? It, it, it includes remains taken from all over the world. Or there's an example that I've been thinking through with friends recently connected to the Smithsonian, where a medical doctor knows that people will die at an international world's fair in the early 20th century, and he literally hangs out at the morgue until people from the Philippines die of tuberculosis and takes those remains back to uh, the Smithsonian Institution. So what do we do with those sets of remains where there isn't really a clear uh, uh, legal sort of path forward? I think in the last five years, maybe this is overly optimistic, but I think we're really reaching a turning point. 
But media coverage, conversation like this, outside agitation and protest has all made an enormous difference in the, the, the pace at which this is uh, moving forward and the, the important significance of major institutions like Harvard University and the Smithsonian Institution issuing fresh statements on this thinking about the Smithsonian shift in language to ethical returns or, or thinking through this repatriation question in a slightly different framework uh, about which they've written on. And they're also doing a, a major study right now of their human remains. And I'll just briefly mention, you know, it's, it's important to note that scientists as of like six months ago are, are not allowed to access the human remains collections at the Smithsonian. They've completely paused uh, scientific research in this area to allow for many of these changes and, and studies to, to really uh, take hold. So I'm optimistic on some sense that we're at a turning point, but I know I keep saying this, I, I don't really think we've conceptualized the size and the scale and the global nature of this problem. So until our solutions really get at that vastness, we're only going to be you know, thinking through this in, in piecemeal ways, which are important and significant, but this is a, a vast problem. And as, and as these institutions think about how, because many of these remains were not ethically um, brought in, right? But now we're, we're, we're coming up with a framework and we have to have the lead time to do that, that they need to include the descendant communities from wherever these remains came from as a part of that process, as a part of that, that uh, process that determines how something gets done. Yeah, absolutely right. And actually, I think on this point, which is the core point, and, and I, I know there are more questions to get to in the chat, and we'll try and get to some of them um, soon. But I, Evie and Olaf, I can see that you maybe want to come in on this exact point, even from, from a sort of a collections point of view. So please do briefly, if you can. Yeah. Well, I'll try to do it briefly. I'll sort of I'm come in from sort of a representative of an institution. And uh, you, you sort of, I think we need to think of this as sort of a, a multi, multi-speed tracks here, uh, because on the one hand, uh, feet dragging as regards patriation is a problem. Uh, on the other hand, what there is is sort of a, a kind of rush within the institution to get this sorted. And what I find myself arguing is that there has to be institutional patience for when communities are in a position, have the resources to have the leisure to engage with this kind of questions. Uh, and, and that's sort of what we're not seeing when on, on the sort of the institutional side when doing repatriation. There, there are certain groups, certain parts of the world where there's certain, the, 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 the resources are there, the time is there, there is enough uh, force, uh, time uh, to, to sort of do this. And largely, these are then sort of finding these requests find their way to the the various institutions, and then we, we the institutions find themselves that we, if we are going to do this, and it's not that hard to see that the most of the world is still not in a position where that where these groups will make these kinds of requests, and that's what I mean. They they're more focused on survival, and we have to be patient enough to to sort of be able to sit on this until such a time that they can do it themselves and the, 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 there is sort of a secondary problem which is that, that there's and, and and i mean that's that's also the tricky bit of discussing with with you know not all activists some activists uh which is is this this there is this the, the the pressed time schedule here this should be done finished this should be finished this should be done quickly uh and this this also becomes then a, a sort of an issue that comes the pressure comes from above or down on on 
collection managers of various kinds from 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 the upper structures of, of academic institutions get this sorted get this out clear this out fix this and the, the simplest way of doing that is to destroy collections and i don't think that that really is what people in this vision but it is sort of put enough pressure on on a university and make it difficult enough and we we may be looking at not particularly well thought out radical solutions in some ways I've seen this situation. I mean, as, as as far as we talk about human remains, this this is we we are talking about um, some of the most some of the most you know the, the the publicized the most high profile ones, not least internationally. But I I have this sort of strange sideline where I talk to schools, and we're talking about uh, school skeletons in in rural Sweden. And and school boards who are who are beside themselves, what they're going to do with this? Uh, and and when she, once you start to tot up the, you know, as I said, the scale of these things, the human remains are literally everywhere. Uh, as as you move across, you know, the Western world specifically. Evie, we might just, like if we take all of this point about resources and and I mean, in some sense, you could spin that around and say it's a question of what you put number one in your priority list, right? And external actors might say, well, number one in your priority list ought well, to be. No, like, no, it's, it's more difficult because even if we put it number one in, in our priority list, uh, it's going to be very difficult to to make it a priority list that that allows us to sort of approach groups around the world that tell them you should care about this, you should yeah. give this your major priority, or we'll pay you to do it. Yeah, I, mean, I can I can see that can quickly become very twisted. I can see that it could be a big dilemma. Evie, you might want to quickly speak to it from your perspective. Yeah. Sure, absolutely. Um, there are several issues that we need to to deal with. Uh, one of them is the lack of resources. Uh, not uh, like you said, the the lack of resources from the community perspective. That's number one. Um, one of the questions that arose with the Inishbofin case is while well, these remains were taken in 1890, Haddon was not uh, secretive about uh, the fact that he took them after the fact, he published uh, research on them. Why didn't the community um, try to get them back sooner? Well, the, the, the answer to that is that they were dealing with famine. You cannot, you cannot take the luxury of, of um, essentially getting your, your heritage back or even addressing it when you don't have food to eat. Um, so that's the number one issue. Uh, the other issue is that we don't have resources in terms of staff. Most museums, especially medical museums, are such a niche area that they are under-resourced. I'm 1.70, one of um, 1.75, staff here. Um, I don't have the ability to take on 300 cases of repatriation by myself or with a colleague or with interns. There needs to be a lot more resources from the university uh, given to this project and to any such project. Um, and finally, the other issue is that we have to, like Olive said, make sure that these are done well, it's not just about making um, the case for repatriation or addressing this, these narratives, is to do it well, doing the research that's required to really know what you have. 
and perhaps not everyone is in my position where I have, you know, handwritten catalogs from uh, 18th century doctors. So you can only imagine what my records look like. Um, but the, the inability to say, okay, I, I have these remains, I'm going to your community and, and tell you about them and be transparent. I cannot do that without knowing exactly what is in the collection and what's associated with. So there is uh, um, a lack of resources uh, in both sides and a lack of information in many cases. And we cannot allow that to make us essentially metaphorically and, and otherwise bury these narratives. They need to be um, on, the, on the foreground. And like you said, um, there have been a lot of cases and I know of a couple of medical institutions throwing away their their collection of human remains and oh, that would be a, that would be an awful thing absolutely peggy sam the, i mean we've heard um, i think it's good to hear uh, this these resource kind of issues articulate it's really important that institutions put money into these things and back them but let's turn this almost into a positive if we can i mean you know, what are the options and what are the groundswells that can help even an institution or a collection from, from your experience, you know, and watching best practice and how it's emerged over the last 10, 20 years? I mean, in some respects, these deficiencies are, are potential positives. We can, we can articulate the needs to a wider public and an interested public, and we can seek for help and funding and agitate and, uh, and, and uh, uh, demand uh, resources from authorities. Um, can you speak to that and can you speak to where you've seen it done well? Um, well, I think the project that I'm working on right now, um, it's the beginning of a, a great project. We're talking about a burial ground that was dug up in 1903 to make way for a road. Um, those remains, but we had to do a little sleuthing. The remains um, were photographed in a newspaper. And I mean, if you research, you, you would see it. All the answers are there. And they actually named an individual who came from the Museum of Natural History in 1903 and collected it. And, and what happened? I called the Museum of Natural History up and I sent them the, the article and said, check 1903, did somebody pick up these remains? And that's what they found in their, their records. And so now that we're sitting down and having conversations, now truth be told, the museum is used to de dealing with the Native American population, but this is one of the early um, times where we're talking about the African American community. All of this to say, you know, what's great about this is the receptiveness on the part of the museum. But I think that there's going to be, and so we're, you know, working on what that the stewardship would be about, all of that. Um, that's important. But I do think, I do think that um, there was an example that someone else uh, shared with me later that, oh yeah, we've seen that list of, of, of skulls that were collected, all right? And at the same time, mind you, in Namibia, the Germans at that same time, you had what was happening in Namibia and the skulls, right? So um, the fact that someone was afraid and the, 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 the conversation had with me was that, well, we never brought it up because we, were, we thought it was gonna be too touchy and nobody would talk to us. That culture has to disappear. And the only way that that culture disappears is that on, you know, it really is incumbent upon the institution 
to be much more open and welcoming and to say, look, we've got a collection. Um, we know that we're in a place where there's a history. They can begin to connect those dots. And I do think, I, you know, I know we said they should be able to raise funding, but that's no small matter. Mm. This, is, this really is an issue of repair. Context is everything. Maybe it, it's not for every uh, community group, but for some community groups, and oftentimes these communities, there was a liberal liberty that was taken because they were a community of color, right? Yeah. And so to me, that context sets it up as, you know, there's, there's an issue of repair here. Okay. To say, oh, well, they don't have the resources. To me, you don't start with that conversation. Yeah, and, and it's all of our problem if if we don't if the resources aren't there to do the work. Sam, last last uh, reaction from you, please. Great. Uh, Peggy, I just want to add in that I could listen to you talk about this all day. I, I really appreciate your insights and perspective on this. I've learned a lot. Um, and I'll make reference to to that last question in the, in the chat from uh, help me on the pronunciation here, Nuala. Beautiful. Nuala, yeah, great. Close enough. Um, yeah. So um, my answer is one about irony and contradictions. Uh, because if you're going to study history seriously, you have to become comfortable with irony and contradictions. If you go back and read newspaper articles and magazine articles it, from 1990 to 1995, there was a tremendous amount of fear that that question uh, indicated about what was so often referred to as a slippery slope that if you repatriate one thing, that's going to lead to the emptying out of museums for a variety of uh, uh, reasons that this would sort of gain momentum. And what happened, frankly, between not just 1990 and 1995, but 1990 and 2010, even, let's say, is something completely different. Uh, we talked about how the Smithsonian at its peak maybe had 38,000 sets of remains. That number's maybe down to 30,000. So it hasn't represented the emptying out of these uh, storehouses and, and uh, museum collection spaces. And on the other hand, something really interesting has happened. It, to, to Peggy's point about restorative justice and making new connections, it, it made new uh, uh, connections between people who were in these new repatriation offices, collections managers and curators who would meet visiting delegations. And I've had the great privilege of being part of many of these visits where you learn an enormous amount from people telling you about the things that their grandmother made or the, the memories that they have growing up or their death and burial practices in their specific context. Some native tribes have been open to scientific research happening on these collections. Others view the struggles of their community as not being disconnected from these in terms of priority, but maybe in fact intimately connected. Maybe the reason why their communities are struggling is because there are souls that of, of ancestors that are essentially trapped in places like Chicago or Washington DC, and those, those people need to come home in order to move forward. So I see this as actually moving in a really remarkably different direction where when you get those connections, when you actually uh, make those things, uh, that it, that it can, can be really productive. And I'll just share one final anecdote that I remember when I was handing a set of uh, ancestral remains over to a Native American elder at one point, um, he looked me dead in the eye as a, as a white man and he made uh, the point, he said, you did this. And what he was meaning at that moment, I could tell from the, the hurt in his voice, that I represented some of the legacy 
of this uh, dispossession of these materials, the looting and the theft of many of these remains. And the hurt is very real for a lot of people. This is not a historical question for a lot of people. So how do we move forward? We try to connect in good faith. We try to listen and learn, um, but also understand that some positives can truly come out of this. Uh, but sometimes that means the therapy session where you talk about really difficult things. Sometimes that means, you know, the, the physical therapy where in order to get movement back of a limb, you have to do really painful and difficult things. And I, I think that's all very real. So I'm grateful for Peggy for bringing that up. Thank you so much to all our panelists. Evie, I'm sorry, I'm, I, I'm now 10 minutes over time, I think, partly because the, the energy of the discussion was so fascinating and we really are at the intersection of these complex negotiations. Um, as I say, Trinity is undergoing a kind of a current investigation of its own colonial legacies. It's an interesting window into Ireland's positionality in this global conversation, and you've really enriched it tonight. We're listening, we're learning, we feel like we're at the beginning of a conversation or just joining it. And, and it's important for our university, I think, to take the next steps and really think them through as Evie and Olaf and, and, and Sam and Peggy have helped us do tonight. Um, it's been a wonderful behind the headlines. I feel truly like a good distance behind those headlines, and I hope our online audience does too. So it just remains for me to thank you and uh, to thank our team at the Hub for, for how much work they've done behind the scenes to make this come together, to thank our brilliant panellists for sharing their expertise and their viewpoints. They were really, really wonderful. And uh, good night to everybody. And thank you for joining us in the online audience. Till next time.